and then you almost hit this environment that's like ruthless and difficult to understand and difficult to work out. So I think sometimes you get a little bit of your personal identity and your football identity clashing a little bit. Uh, early January, I signed those forms. Um, so so the first youth signing uh, that Sir Alex Ferguson ever offered or ever made was, was me. So that's something I'm very, very proud of. 60 minutes, you know, half pace, three quarter pace, just getting a few touches. Within five minutes, it smashed somebody on the touchline. <laughs> I think I remember just sort of being in a bit of a void for a bit. Support, low, very low support. No one really checking up on you, how you're doing. It's almost like you're left to get on with your own devices. Hello and welcome to the KS Podcast, the home of stories, stories of people. Podcasts are a very big passion of mine. Um, I'm inspired by podcasts such as the True Geordie podcast and most recently the High Performance podcasts. And that's why I've started my own. Um, this is going to be the home of stories of people where I interview guests from various different uh, walks of life and I really try to find out what makes them tick and how their experiences and their learnings in life have shaped the people that they are and how that then plays a part in what makes them in their own fields in a very relatable way to me and you watching at home elite and how that brings them success and I hope you do enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoy the podcast that I've been inspired by so whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it on Spotify, Anchor or any other podcast platform please do support by subscribing, following, liking, definitely sharing and of course comment below because your feedback is always appreciated. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you later. Also, another quick message from me. Hopefully, I will not need to add this into the podcast. But if I do, it's because that the episode that you're watching or listening to was recorded when I just moved into my new flat. So, the internet connection may not be great, which means there may be bits of lag in the video or the the audio that you're listening to so if there is please hang in there the quality of the content will shine through and i promise you it won't last long because hopefully soon once covid and things like that are over i'll be able to do face-to-face -face interviews but until then hang in there and i promise you will enjoy the podcast hello everyone and welcome to the ks podcast uh, the home of stories stories of people people the first joining me is someone I've interviewed before, but we sort of took it down a different route. We sort of looked over his life as a series of events. But this time I wanted to dive into more of the mentality that got him through those events. With me today, I've got a Manchester United Academy product. I've got a person who's experienced the highs and lows of football. He made it into the Manchester United setup. He was sadly let go. He then had to continue his career further down the ladder. And then, unfortunately, he had to go out of the game due to injury and is now a sports lecturer. With me today is Alan Tong. Um, thank you for joining me, Alan. Um, first of all, how are you doing? I'm not so bad, Carthy. Yeah, thank you. Um, just getting uh, ready for the for the next instalment of of the Euros. Um, I'm sure many people have been following that over this last if last few weeks. So getting to the, um, the real interesting stages now, hitting the quarterfinals. So, uh, yeah, so just... Just been following that really, and uh, just to try and trying to keep as upbeat as they can. Hopefully, maybe you know England can maybe do it. Can they bring it home? Maybe we'll we'll see. We'll at see. the time of recording, 
England have reached the quarterfinal. Watch this, we may, may not have gone out, so we'll we'll sort of stay cautious on that one. Um, but to start, Alan, I think your journey is something that really interested me, and it was the perfect way to start. So, how I want to ask all of my guests the first question is how I'll ask you: um, What is the earliest memory of what you went on to do? So, for your case, what is your earliest memory of of playing football? Yeah, probably, probably like a lot of young people, Catholic in the garden. I think. Um... With with my dad, with my family, you know, um, just sort of like as far as as far back as I can remember, I had a ball at my feet. Uh, my dad was a reasonable player, so so like a, a lot of other families, you tend to follow, don't you? you it's passed down, isn't it? So if a member of your family is particularly good in a field or good at something, you know, the chances are that'll get filtered down and um, and pushed on, and and sort of like interest shown in yourself and. So yeah, so my first conscious memory would be probably about three or four in the garden, just dribbling a ball. Um, me, me dad made some little nets for me, um, which was fantastic. So we we used to have um, all, all scenarios of last minute goals in cup finals, or it'd always be like a Roy of the Rovers type stuff where you'd need a goal in the last minute to win something, and you know that it's like interactive play, isn't it? So it's like. Um, that that's how it kind of like started early for me, getting an interest in in that really, and 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 from that it kind of like moved on and, and developed. Yeah, and in terms of your family, you mentioned your dad there, who who sort of enhanced that interest for for you. What what were you like growing up? What was the background you were in? What sort of family influence did you have at that age? Well, Man, Man United, Man United base really. My dad was a big Manchester United supporter. Uh, he always used to tell me, Carthick, about um, how he'd enjoyed following Man United, you know, after the tragedy of Munich and the rebuild that went on. And, you know, my dad used to tell me about, um, you know, some of the greats back then, like Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, De- uh, George Best. Um, and, you know, my, my dad was a regional f- footballer too. He, he, he got to sort of town team level. He, play, he played for Manchester Boys uh, alongside a lad called Carlos Satori, who was a... Uh, an old United player who fitted into that 60s team. Um, my dad got to play in uh, youth sides at Bury and Oldham, uh, but he always tells me he met my mum and it all <laughs> it all went downhill from that. He said the football uh, got got sort of put on the back burner and uh, uh, there, there was kind of different things going on. So it, if you ask me dad about like football career, so it, it was my mum's fault. That's that's why he left it. So. Uh, but yeah, he played. He got to a decent standard, but he probably could have done a little bit better. But uh, other things get in the way, Carthick. <laughs> and do you think if if you were in a different sort of family background, do you think you still would have ended up in football? Or do you think that environment was perfect for you to go into? I think I think it's difficult to say, isn't it? I, I was very lucky because you know my mum and dad were very supportive. Uh, you know, you, you hear. Uh, and it's heartbreaking sometimes about a lot of really good young players these days, but they've they've not got the transport to get to training, or they've not got the the kind of the finances to get the the, the players somewhere, you know, but boys and girls. Uh, and I think that's that's really really sad. Uh, and I was I was very lucky that uh, played in like grassroots teams, and you know, my dad would take me to training, and um, he'd take me to like to play on Saturday morning, Sunday morning, so. So quite impactful, really, around the family that, you know, there was a lot of interest and a lot of stuff going on around football because, you know, it, t- it takes up a fair bit of your time, doesn't it? You've got, like, training to go to and 
um, you know, diff- different elements as well as your as as your schooling. So, so I think I think that was probably quite a big influence that you know, my mum and dad were very supportive, and, and they to an a- argumentatively they probably helped me get you know into town team level into. Man United as a young player, and you know, and, and other things that were going on, you know, like they they played a huge role in that because of the support that they that they, they offered. So obviously, you you said you started off as as anyone else, you know, you're playing in your garden, you're pretending you're in an FA Cup final, whatever it is. How did you then, or when did you then realize that you know what, I want to make a living out of this, or I want to make it professional? When was that moment that you realized you could? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like anything else. You just kind of played like day by day, week by week, season by season. There wasn't any sort of stage at, as far as I can remember where I thought oh, I want I want to be like a professional footballer. I think you just kind of like just see where see where it took you. And you know, I was I was lucky enough to to play for my Bolton School Boys, like my town side. And then I got the next step from that is like the best of the town teams played in a county side. So I, I represented Greater Manchester County. So I was kind of like operating at a decent level. And and what happened, Karthik, around these games, like your town teams, your county games, you had like scouts come to to watch you and uh, they'd invite you down. So so I got invited to a few places, like Bolton had a look at. So I trained with Bolton for a, for a little while. And then uh, the blue side of Manchester, I went on trial at City. Uh, had a good trial, they, they offered me. Uh, schoolboy forms, um, you know, to sign there. But uh, alongside that, because it wasn't uncommon at the time to have, you know, going on trials at different places, uh, Man United come knocking. So after a county game, the youth development officer at the time, Joel Brown, said to me, mum and dad, like, we'd like to to invite Alan down on, on trial. I think it was over a Christmas period. Uh, Sir Alex had only been at the club November 1986, he joined. And I went on trial at Christmas 86. And... Uh, it was a bit of a strange one because uh, when I went on trial, it was like over the New Year period. So it was like the 28th to the 2nd of January. So I remember staying in a halls of residence um, for New Year's Eve into New Year's Day, which was a bit random, but but there you go. Uh, and at the end of that trial, I uh, got called in and said, we'd like to offer you schoolboy forms and, and an apprenticeship as well. So so I think one of like the happiest moments I ever had was like, um, going home on that after that trial and saying to like my mum and dad, like United have offered me uh, an opportunity to go and uh, play with them. So, so it was it wasn't a case back then of like, uh, all right, we better get in touch with an agent or anything like that. It was just a case of like passes the pen, uh, sign here, uh, and, and away you go. And uh, and that was that. So I started like in the in it was called there was four teams to Man United back then. Cafe like the B team was like the sort of the juniors. So. It, Probably it was under 18s, but a lot of 15, 16 year olds played in that. Uh, the A team uh, was the next step. Uh, that was kind of open age. So usually apprentices, young pros played in that. The resis also played in the Central League. So um, what would usually happen back in them days, you'd have like a first team fixture. So the first team would play Everton or Old Trafford. And chances are the reserves would be in like the reverse fixture uh, over at Goodison. Um, so, so it, it used to sort of map across each other like that. Um, so, so yeah, so interesting to just trying to navigate the levels really, and go from the B to the A to the Reses, and then you know the final destination, trying to get into that first team squad. So, 
so quite a lot of interesting experiences. The culture was very, very different back then. Uh, a lot of interesting goings on and movements and behaviours and rituals and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was um, it was it was an interesting time and an interesting period. Yeah, we'll get into that sort of the culture stuff in a little bit. But like when when you were getting into that United setup, talk to me about that progression because. The way you've described it, it all happened very quickly. But what sort of steps were there towards getting scouted, towards being off? Yeah, I think I think what used to... being given the, the, the school bit, school bit funds. Yeah, what what used to happen, Carthic, was they used to have like localized scouts. So there was a lad called George Knight back then who who like covered the Bolton area. And I think you you fast forward that into the modern game, and there just seems to be like like scouts everywhere now. I think I think. You know, scouts are probably like um, inside different areas and no school teachers and anybody who's showing a bit of promise in the playground. It's like, oh, we'll, you know, we'll snap him up, we'll bring him in or her. And um, But back then it was quite like the scout would just come and watch and, and it'd be over a period of time. It'd, it'd be very unusual for you to just have one game and a scout would invite you down. He, he used to turn up regularly. So it was like monitoring you really. And I think monitoring your development. So, so yeah, so I used to get me um, scouted at a grassroots team I used to play for called Bolton Lads Club uh, on a Sunday morning. So I used to sort of see the scout um, appearing then because it used to be like quite quite exciting back then. Like, oh, George is here, like Man United scouts on the line this morning. So uh, I better do, I better, better sort of do the business and have a decent game. He used to follow the town teams around the Bolton schoolboy sides, and then he'd, he'd turn up at the county games as well. So I think I think a real monitoring, timely, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It like over a period of time before you got invited uh, down to United, and now it worked back then was um, used to be something called the School of Excellence. They, they trained on a Monday night and a Thursday night, so I think I think our age group was like six to eight or something like that. Um, Eric Harrison would, would take that or, or Kiddo, Brian Kidd would come and do a little bit in there and it used to be in the, the inside uh, AstroTurf at the cliff uh, absolutely freezing cold um, it used to be colder inside the building <laughs> than, it was, than it was outside so it was, but honestly I think it was great because you used to sort of go there finish school uh, get a lift down there and then um used to sort of go into the changing rooms and they just pile a load of kits onto a bench that they had in one of the cliff dressing rooms. So you had like a yellow shirt, old, old United kit, a yellow shirt, blue blue shorts, dark blue shorts, dark blue socks. Uh, but the feeling of pride of putting that kit on and wandering from the dressing rooms over towards the the uh, the indoor cliff astroturf, it's like you felt 10 foot tall doing that. And you had like... <laughs> It was called Adidas Sambas back then, like the AstroTurf trainers. Yeah. So, so with that, with that kit and your Sambas on wandering there over there with your group was like you just felt very special. You know, it, it, it was fantastic. And then, uh, like I said, just just learning then into your training and lots of different ball work and passing and you know everything that comes with football. You know, practicing your your touch and your shooting and. You know your you know, your, your strategies, your tactics, all that sort of stuff embedded in in just trying to develop uh, you as a player, and but always a bit of running as well. Always a bit of running in the end that that used to be quite difficult because you'd have like you might have had a tough day at school and 
you might have already done PE and then you go in training and they're asking you to do, you know, long runs or or different different types of sprinting or, or you know, different types of um, of runs that build your stamina up. Um, so yeah, it, it was t- it was tough, but you know that that's kind of the the way it was back then. You know, I was involved with with so many teams. I was playing like school team, grassroots team, town team, county team, training at United twice a week. You know, and, and that's all around your schooling and your GCSE. So, so it got quite demanding. I remember coming to the end of my uh, schooling time. I was doing my GCSEs, and I must have been really run down. Um, Back then, if if I if I kind of got a little bit of fatigue or was really tired, I used to get like little st- a sty on me. I was quite sore. Um, and that was an indicator of you being like, you know, shattered. And mm-hmm. I had I had a sty on my left eye and a sty on my right eye at sixteen. So I was like, you know, you're thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot here. I'm doing too much. And um, you know, and I think sometimes with these young players, and we talk about talent development and looking after players. You know, they've, they've got to be handled correctly. I think that's an art in itself. You know, allowing players to develop in a football sense, but giving them a little bit of space and time to be children as well and to be young people as well. Um, I think I think you can almost have that that professionalisation too early. You know, it's, it's one thing that I'm quite passionate about. And you hear a lot of academy teams are training two and three times a week and they're playing and, you know, it's quite demanding on a youngster. And I think sometimes, you know, I think a lot of clubs do this really well, but I think some clubs have really, really got to look at this and think, you know, don't be burning young players out too early, you know. And we're training on a lot of different surfaces, Carthic as well. And my school used to have like this shale stuff that was like horrible. It used to get like porridge when it was wet or rainy. And then I'd be training on AstroTurf, I'd be training on grass and, you know, all that mix of things, sometimes it makes you wonder whether that, that was a determinant in my injury, like when I was like quite quite a young player, whether that all added up. Um, so, so yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of insight into the, uh, you know, the little bit of the journey. Yeah, you, you talk about that sort of physical pressure and, and demands that you felt playing so many games and playing maybe training that hard. What about the mental demands? What were they like and, and how did you manage to get through that? Because... At a club like United, the demands are high. We all know that, and especially in the modern day. But back then, was it similar to that? Did you feel that kind of demand? Did you feel that kind of pressure? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think um, the, w- the way the culture was, you know, I-, I know they talk about developing players and bringing players through, but there was all always, Carthy, that element of it's always nice to win. You know, and United uh, always, I think, have been underpinned by striving to become the best at something or, you know, to, to get victories or win. So even I can remember, you know, 14, 15 year old just playing in the B teams. It was all driven really to try to get a result. You know, you can't win every week. We know that, but you know, at the end of the games, it, it's almost a case of, you know, what can we learn from that? How can we do better next time? But it was, it was always nice to challenge for leagues. You know, I think the B team that I played in, we were the first side to win the B team league since 1972 so I think I think that was that was a, a, a fantastic achievement. So we that was the first first team to win that league for like six sixteen seasons. So so that was really nice. And then when you got into with Eric Harrison in the uh, the A team squad and the A team games, you know the, the demand and the pressure was you know we got to win. We're Man United, you know it. I don't I don't care who we're playing, you know, and and that that pressure was kind of always there. But I think I think 
it's like it's like anything else. It just gets you into good habits. It, it gets you into into that will of trying to improve and do better all the time. And you know, I think sometimes winning is almost like discussed as a as a is it important? Is it not important? Well. You know, my personal experiences, I think it is, even as a, as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, it's always nice to win. Um, a lot of people will probably be screaming at me, saying, no, it's all about development. It's all about no pressure, you know, getting them technically better, physically better, mentally better. But, yeah, that's great, but it's always nice to win as well, isn't it? So, so yeah, so this, I'd say kind of that psychological pressures were quite were quite demanding in, in my experiences from sort of 14 to, to 19 when I moved on. Yeah, and I think that's a, a big discussion itself, isn't it? Whether that that age group should have that amount of pressure on them, and I think there's a lot of a lot of literature on that. Of course, um, we we talked about. I mean, you you briefly mentioned Eric Harrison. What was he like for you? How much did you get to work with him, and and how much of an influence was he on you? Because I think it's very underplayed how important a role the coach can have on a player at that age. Just to talk to us about that a little bit. Well, Eric Eric was a tough hard, uh, craggy-faced centre-half as a player. Uh, took no prisoners, no messing around. I remember the first time I met him, wandered into the cliff training. Uh, he had his like his red and grey jacket on with like EH on, so I wandered over and he was all like, where, where, where are you from? Uh, uh, George Dyer, you're stuttering. <laughs> George Dyer sent me down from Bolton. Uh, right, right, okay. Just, just enjoy yourself, son. Get, get involved. Enjoy yourself. And thinking, there's like, there's like, not, not. It's not a warming relationship, if that makes sense. It's like there's always like Eric and and you're there. There's like a bit of a distance between you. Um, I didn't really under, I didn't really understand the harshness and, and and the challenges at the time. But I learned later on down the line. It kind of struck me a little bit why that was because if you can't cope with. Uh, criticism, difficult times, someone being a bit tough with you. How are you going to cope later on down the line when you try to strive through professional football? Because we know, Carthic, it's high-performance environments, it's difficult, it's ruthless, it's challenging. There's there's copious amounts of change in there. You're in, you're out, you're deselected, you're left out, you're not in the squad, media are talking about you, you're injured, you're not injured, you're back in, you're back out. There's so much change to deal with. And I think if you don't develop that almost like that, that mentality where it's kind of like take the blows, learn from it, move on, take the blows, learn from it, move on. I think that's kind of a constant across all of us. You know, it, 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 life's a tough journey. It's not easy. And it's all about, you know, when you do get your difficult times and your, and your tough times and your, and your moments that, that kind of real, put a real challenge in your path, you know, sometimes it's sink or swim, isn't it? What what would you do? You got to take the blows, learn from them. What can I do better for next time? And and it's that constancy, isn't it? So, so I didn't really recognise that early on with Eric, but the later I went on and and sort of moved my my sort of football career forwards and then into broader life, I kind of understood that in a, in, a, in a little bit more detail. You mentioned that it's important for people to have that resilience of, you know, taking a blow, trying to find a positive and learning from it and then moving on. How exactly do you develop that? Is there a certain technique that you used? How, how did you manage that? So it's a great question, Karthik. Um, I think I think a lot of a lot of things come into that, don't they? Whether it's from your upbringing, you know, your family that's around you, maybe your experience, you know, 
there's some incredible stories, isn't there, of players that have come through the routes that they have to get into the Premier League. You know, like looking at like somebody like, for argument's sake, in the modern day, um, like Ahmad Diallo, like his, his route of football has been incredible. Um, I remember reading a, a, an article on that, the coach's voice about Raheem Sterling. His, his journey's been incredible. And, and it's like, it, it, I think everybody has different experiences and how that resilience is built. Um, and all, almost like football environments are quite volatile. They're, they're just full of volatility. There's full of difficulty in there, full of challenge. So if you've had a difficult time coming into football, um, sometimes football can seem clean in relation to that and a lot easier. So I think I think my argument's kind of a bit of a flip on that. Um, I was quite sort of, let's see, I can put this in the right way. Um, you know, brought up with good manners, good ethics, um, politeness. You know, I mean, my mum and dad were big on that. And then you almost hit this environment that's like, ruthless and difficult to understand and difficult to work out so I think sometimes you get a little bit of your personal identity and your football identity clashing a little bit whereas some players if they've had like a lot of difficult times prior to football and then they come into it in comparison football can seem easier so they maybe strive on a little bit more you know maybe that's something for for a bit of research later on down the line you know entrances entries into football environments and where people come from and you know, football stereotypically is underpinned by or entrenched in the working classes. But I think over these last 20, 25 years, there's been a bit of a, a bit of a shift on that. Um, since all the money came into the Premier League, 1992, 93, um, TV companies, there's been a lot of cash injection, Sky, BT, etc., etc. Amazon, uh, Prime have picked up a few games, documentaries, etc., there's a lot of money flooding into football and maybe that has just kind of like altered the profile of the type of player that's come in. You know, back in my day, it was more ruthless culture, difficult culture, um, tough culture, tough to survive, to survive in there. Whereas the modern youngsters may be a little bit more, uh, maybe wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to deal with that at all. You know, you talk, you talk about the generational stuff. Um, so again, there's been there's been a real culture shift, I think, um, over this last period. So, so um, yeah, interesting, and and certainly, I think certainly um, from a research perspective, you know, dissertations, masters, PhDs, I thought maybe there's something that can be looked at in a little bit more detail and depth to to understand um, player backgrounds and how, like you say, Carthage spot on. How, how do they develop resilience? How they cope? Because that's something I'm a bit concerned about in the mid modern day. You know, how, how are these young players developing that? Because you don't clean boots anymore. You don't, mm. you don't have to clean showers. You don't have to um, clean up kit after the first team's finished, after the resis have finished, or the under-23s these days. You know, where, where Where is that development of resilience coming from? Um, it, it's a great question because we know first-team environments is completely different to academy environments. Academies are more developmental, more supportive, uh, more empathetic, uh, a little bit more caring in there, a bit more nurturing. First-team environments are tough. It's all about winning, performance-driven, ruthless, in and out the team. Uh, 25 players in the squad, only 
11 can play at one time. You know, it's it's very, very much dog-eat-dog. And um, so I think that's a great question. Certainly one worthy of ongoing research that is where can a young player or where does a young player develop that mental toughness, courage, strength, resilience that you need to transition out of the academy and get yourself into, into the first-team environment? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been brilliant so far. I mean, like, for example, the, when you mentioned the, the boot cleaning and things like that, you'd never see that now, whereas I actually think maybe you could because then you're sort of earning your place, you're earning a bit of respect. And I think the game does miss that a little bit. Um, obviously, someone who was, who was big on, you know, earning your place and, and developing that discipline was, of course, Sir Alex Ferguson. Now, I need to word this correctly because there will be people that jump in and go, actually, no, he wasn't. But you were technically the first pro contract signed under his his management. And what are your audiences with him? What, what do you have to say about him and, and what situations were you with him? Yeah, I mean, the, the, we'll get we'll get the story straight and Carthic first. Like, the, you know, the, technically, if you read any trivial pursuit question, we'll say Viv Anderson is the first signing because um, technically it was with Brian McClare. But, you know, I claim to be the first youth signing that he ever made. I, I signed for United in January 1987. Uh, Fergie had arrived in November 86. Uh, himself and Eric Harrison and Brian Whitehouse, who was the reserve team manager, and Kiddo and Sir Matt Busby even, came watching the trial that I was on around the Christmas of, of 1986. Uh, they offered me schoolboy forms and apprentice. Um, early January, I signed those forms. Um, so, so the first youth signing uh, that Sir Alex Ferguson ever offered or ever made was was me. So that's something I'm very, very proud of. Um, but uh, the first fee signing, the first signing that he made that involved monetary um, a change and involved a professional coming in, was was of course Viv Anderson. So there's there's the kind of the the, the little story on there. So. So yeah, so Sir Alex again, very very similar to, <coughs> excuse me, very similar to Eric Harrison, uh, tough, a winner, um, hard as nails. A very different back then, Catholic, because Manchester United, although a huge club, they've always been big. Obviously, from a staff, coaching, playing perspective, a lot smaller to control. Um, you know, if you think about the modern football um, environment now. You've got analysts, sports scientists, physios, coaches, coaches in foundation phase, youth development phase, professional phase. Um, you've got medical staff. You've got uh, scouting and recruitment. It's like a massive concern now, isn't it? So the, the manager, is, that's tough to oversee all that, if not impossible. When Sir Alex was there, Early, early years, 86, 87, that was a lot smaller. So he, he could see what was going on more. So he, he had more of a, a handle on what was going on. Um, he knew everything about the different players. He knew where you were up to, what you were doing. He had his, his moles around Manchester. Um, he used to sort of like say things. Uh, uh, you was on King Street Thursday afternoon, weren't you? What were you doing there? Like I told you to go home and rest. And, and then your brain's scrambling and to think like, I was sometimes he could use it as a bit of a wind up. Um, so, so yeah, he knew a lot of, about the playing staff and what they were doing. And um, I'm sure he had loads of phone calls in his office about, I've seen this particular player on Saturday night. 
uh, I've seen this particular player at this bar at this pub and um, but yeah, I think as we as we sort of like fast forward into the modern game, Carthy, that that's a lot harder to control now. Um, you know, he even turned up the famous story of uh, Sharpie and Ryan Giggs, didn't he? And Fergie turned up at the digs, I think, and uh, I think he gave like a load of apprentices like a clip on the back of the head when they were going out the door. So you you wouldn't have that happening in in, in modern football. And, and the the great thing as well, Carthic, about Sir Alex was he was always interested in the youth players. He'd, he'd always come and watch. So how it worked back then is the B or the A team would play Saturday mornings, 11 o'clock kickoff. And then the first team would be three o'clock Saturday. Um, he'd go and watch the youths first. He might even watch a half of the B team game, a half of the A team game at the cliff, and then go on to Old Trafford. And he used to come and coach the, the groups as well on a Monday night and a Thursday night. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't see many first team Premier League managers coaching under 14s, under 16s now, would you? So, so he, he, it was like um, he, he was very interested in in the youth side, and and when Sir Alex arrived uh, on Thursday the sixth of November, I think it was a Thursday. It's either a Monday or a Thursday. He came in to the AstroTurf where the group was training in that evening to have a look. So on his very first day as manager, he come watching the youth team training. So I thought that was quite quite interesting. Um, so, so he's almost like setting his stall out uh, right away in what he wanted to think about doing. Um, I believe I've I've heard a rumor he bought a load of historical Man United books from the museum and set about reading them for the first few days of his tenure. Um, I know for a fact that he spoke to Samat Busby around the philosophy and the culture and the history and. Um, and that was kind of like him laying a foundational underpin for how to forward and push Manchester United into this unbelievable um, juggernaut of a football club that, that it is today. I think he had a, 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 a massive role to, to play in that. You know, if you, if you remember Old Trafford Carpet when I played like 86, 87, 88, you know, although a brilliant, fantastic ground, very historical what it is today is like it's unbelievable you know any you know yourself fans going into Old Trafford you always get that special like the, the hairs stand up on on your arms and you get that like goosebumps when you walk into the ground you walk up those steps you have a look at the surface and you know that the, almost like the scope and the size of Old Trafford it, it's very special I know there's probably a lot of fans now probably thinking well we need to invest we need to do this we need to do that but for me, it's like it's still got that special feel to it, just because of the history. Simply, you know, like the Busby Bays playing on Old Trafford, the best law in Charlton years, you know, the the seventies years under Tommy Doherty into the eighties with Ron Atkinson winning cup finals, and it's always been a special place. And um, and like, long may that continue. Yeah, so obviously you're being managed, but I mean, you've, 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 the club is being managed by one of the best managers the world's ever seen. So obviously that kind of will eventually end up with some of the, the best players the, the world's ever seen. Now, tell some of the big name players that you played with because I know there's a. I remember from the last time I spoke to you, there's a story about um, Bobby Robson playing with you, wasn't there? Brian Brian Robson was class. Bobby Robson. Yeah, Brian Robson was my hero growing up, uh, Carthic, and one of my one, one of my idols really. So to get 
to get an opportunity to play with with Brian was was a dream, a dream come true to and, and train with him as well. Again, another thing like the the youth team, the resies, the first team, they all used to muck him back then and train together, which was like fantastic. So yeah, so some of the players of that era, Gordon Strachan, um, Norman Whiteside, top class, Mark Hughes, uh, Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister, uh, Dennis Irwin, Lee Sharp. Um, Paul McGrath, um, Andre Konchelskis, uh, Brian McClare, yes, Jesper Olsen, um, Kevin Moran. So, like, top top class footballers that that um, that you were lucky enough. Like, if they had injuries or they were coming back to fitness, they'd come and join in uh, in the um, in the A team. You know, they'd have a run out. So I remember Brian Robson was coming back from injury and you're thinking like England international, uh, captain of his country, captain of the club. He'll just play his way in nice and steady, 60 minutes, you know, half pace, three quarter pace, just getting a few touches. Within five minutes, it smashed somebody on the touchline. <laughs> Going around grilling everybody, telling them to do this. Time. <laughs> wow, this is unbelievable! Like if if he does that in eight in an eighteen game, like it just shows the character that he had. Um, but you know, it was that that was fantastic, and he, he's probably one of you know a lot of United historians and people who follow the club over the years. Up, I was like Rob, Rob, one of the best we've ever had. Like from a from what he offered and what he gave, and I think I think he was like for me, Catholic. You know, you talk about in the modern world about in the modern football about all-round players. He was one. Good control, could pass short and long, good engine, stamina, um, score goals, good header, uh, brave. He could do everything, Robbo. Uh, I think Ron Atkinson described him as like, he's solid gold and, and, and he was uh, fantastic. And seems to be a lot of comparisons with United fans between him and Roy Keane. Um, but for me, Robbo just takes it and I, and the reason for that is I think Robbo scored goals in his career that I don't think Roy Keane could have scored. So that that kind of be the differential that, that I'll separate it. I'd like to see Roy Keane's reaction if you ever said that to him. <laughs> yeah, he'd probably beat me up. His face. <laughs> um the, no, to be honest, Robbo's one of the players that I really wish I could have seen. Like Cantona's up there, but I think Robbo's one of them. Um, you mentioned a, a tackle from Robbo. Now, when I asked Twitter for some questions to ask you, I was told to ask you about a tackle on McManaman. What's that about? Mm, that was an interesting one because it very different back then. United, United Liverpool rival as it is today was was very strong back then, and and I think in the in the in the point of history, probably Liverpool had the best part of it. 70s and 80s, but United had nine times out of ten beat him in the league, so it it was kind of a, a funny situation anyway. So across all levels of the club, um, you know, United's always nice to turn Liverpool over. So so yeah, so Steve McManaman, very, very good player, always give me problems, difficult player to play against. He was quite a rangy player, quite tall, uh, like shaggy perm. So I'd always get encouraged off Eric Harrison to sort of like uh Early doors. So, but anyway, what happened was on the cliff, the ball had kind of like been um, uh, knocked around a little bit. It had bounced up and he was kind of like um, a bit of space between me and the ball. So I thought, here's my chance. 
So I went at him with my boot. I kind of just touched the ball slightly, but followed through. And I, I caught him just under his windpipe, under like the, the like the nape of his neck there. So I've got a referee's report somewhere. <laughs> and it says in the in the 10th minute of the game, Tong, the United number two, caught Matt Manor and the Liverpool number 11 just below the windpipe. So, uh, yeah, it was a good one. Uh, a decent scarfic <laughs> and... Uh, you know that that was kind of like how it was, but I can't believe I even got like a yellow card for that. <laughs> That'd probably be a jail sentence. If you never mind a red card. So. Oh yeah, that's that is an interesting. Story. You know what? I'm glad I asked you that question. Thank you to whoever uh, suggested that I asked that. Um, so obviously, yeah, we've we've talked about the highs of being at United. Let's go towards the more difficult aspect, which was getting told that you weren't going to be given a new contract and that you would be getting released. Um, what was that? What was that like for you? Because that's such a, you know, from, from that excitement, you've suddenly been brought back down to earth. What was that like? Yeah, that that was tough. I probably hardest, one of the hardest points in my life, that, because it's just come out. You just don't read it, do you? You don't see it coming. And um, uh, to, to sort of like, because what, what happened was then, in the modern day, like you get agents going in now about, January, February to say like what's happening with my client? Is it is he gonna get offered a contract? But because we came through a, an era where there were very little agents, only the top players had them. It was basically you and the manager in in, in the office. So he'd say to you, you know, we're gonna offer you 150 quid a week or something. And you just say, All right, okay, and that'd be it. You close the door and say thank you and 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 head away. So so yeah, it got to that stage, Carthic. I think it was around May time. Um, what, what was really sad was we'd just won the league, the A-team league on the Saturday morning. Fergie had come and watched. Um, what was quite bizarre was, like, I got a lot of praise for that. Like, he, 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 he after the game, he said to me, uh, you've done fantastic this morning. And then on the Monday or Tuesday, somebody say, like, we're going to move you on. Um, and you think, like, to go from, like, high to low is just typical of football. But, yeah, that was... That, that was a tough experience because you it's like your dreams have kind of you've got so far where you've kind of gone through the B team, the A team, the reses, you've kind of played in a first couple of first team friendlies, you're just knocking on that door. But unfortunately, just that next step is kind of like taken away from you. So so yeah, that that was um that was a difficult time. Um but it's like anything else. You just got to take the blows, aren't you? That you experience in your life. Nobody knows what's coming, um, and you just got to try and learn from them and and try and move your life on as as best as you can. But yeah, it, it was tough because you have to tell your mum and dad, your girlfriend at the time, and friends and family. Again, this is where this identity kind of thing maybe doesn't do you many favors because all throughout your schooling, you've been Alan Tong, the footballer. Everybody in the in the village that I lived at was kind of saying like, "Who've you got Saturday? Uh, can you sign this for us? Can you get us a ticket for this?" And then it's almost like not there anymore, and, you, and it's that, that heartbreak to say to somebody, "Oh, I'm not at United anymore." And it got to a stage where I was kind of like crossing the road because I didn't want to talk because I knew what what had happened. They'd say like, how, how, "Who've you got Saturday?" or you know, "How are you doing?" or and to sort of say that that disappointment, say, "Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not there anymore now." It's like you'd rather avoid people. So like avoidance behaviours. So it's definitely a, a big mental impact that um, something that, you know, was, was tough to get over and tough to move on from. Yeah. And I think I find that interesting that, you know, earlier we spoke about 
you know, dealing with blows and developing a resilience. And, and that was on a much smaller scale. But now we're going into a bigger, almost identity crisis where you've seen yourself as a Manchester United player. I support Manchester United. This is my home. And all of a sudden, you've got to find a new one. It's almost as if you've become homeless within the next second. So how did you deal with that? And then obviously going towards the Exeter move, how did that come about? Because you must have had to really change how you thought about the game, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, absolutely, Carl. I think just you, you, you explained it well, just very lost. Um, you, you, the identity had been gone, ab ab obliterated, if you want to call it that. Um, I think I remember just sort of being in a bit of a void for a bit, um, writing off for a couple of jobs, you know, like courier work or anything that you felt kind of um, you, you could do and, and fit in around. Um, support low, very low support. No one really checking up on you, how you do. It's almost like you're left to get on with your own devices, which I think wouldn't wouldn't happen. I'd like to think it wouldn't happen, but you don't know. You still hear some horror stories. Um, but yeah, Exeter. When I was a first year apprentice at United, I got chose to go with England under twenties. Uh, played the uh, Russian football league in Moscow, and the manager of the party that day was a lad called Alan Ball, old World Cup winner. Um, he managed the party with a, an old Southampton manager and an England uh, assistant manager called Laurie McMenemy. So I, I had a decent game. I was only like a young pup in that side. I think I was the youngest member of the of the squad. I was only 17. Um, did okay. And he, he said that he'd been watching me uh, in resi games as well, you know, on Old Trafford. So it's, it's surprising who's watching Carthick and... He invited me down to Exeter to, to to head down there, and I didn't know where I didn't know where Exeter was. I'd never heard of it before. Growing up in Bolton and Manchester, I, I never heard of Exeter City. I, I was aware of them, but if you said to me, "Go and find Exeter on a map, Carthick," honestly, that's how I wouldn't know where to point to. It could have been anywhere. I could have been pointing towards Scotland for all. <laughs> um, so yeah, so off off I went down to Exeter. I had a little fiesta at the time down the M6, M5 that my dad had drawn a map for us, like how to get there. Got no sat navs in, in those days. So it, like, it felt like the other end of the world. You know, you was, I think there's was about a, a 286, about a four and a quarter hour trip or something like that. Um, but yeah, I ended up spending some really nice times in my life down there. I really enjoyed it and uh, I managed to get my career moving again, got into the first team, played some first team football. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting change, but one that I valued. You know, you give me an opportunity and to get your first team debut under a World Cup winner was special. Um, so you know, to get some league appearances in, I scored scored in the football league, and you know, I think I think so. I know you talk about realising dreams, you know, Man United was the big dream, but this was kind of like the 99% dream, like becoming a professional footballer and, and sort of playing in the first team at league level. So, uh, yeah, so it was good. I, I had some great times in Exeter and uh, still still do a bit of uh, a bit of radio work to this day for Radio Devon, which is really nice. And, uh, and would you believe I'm playing in a veterans game uh, next Saturday? Uh, the 10th of July, so I've got myself a bit of fitness working and got myself back to playing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go and turn out and see how that goes. 
I'll probably be blowing like Thomas the Tank Engine after 10 minutes. Can't think anything could happen in this. Hamstrings <laughs> gone, calf. So I'm just going to have to take my time with this and just see, see how it goes. But just, just don't, just don't uh, go for anyone's windpipes. Oh, if, if the ball bounces, I, I'll let them have it this time. I think, <laughs> I think my middle learnings changed since I was 17, 18 years old. I, I won't be taking anybody out. But then again, once that football gets rolled out and teams and all that, you, you never know. You never know. So, so um, obviously, yeah, you've you've switched from Manchester United now. You're over. You're over at Exeter. Firstly, what did you learn from the United experience that helped you go towards this new environment? What did you take from there? Um, I think the first thing I noticed was uh, the the sort of level of football at Exeter was kind of not as slick. It wasn't as high uh, than it was at United. So you, you, you kind of get the ball at fullback at United and you get like Giggsy spinning in the channels or something. You get the ball at Exeter and like that wouldn't be happening. So it was like a bit of an adjustment going on um, from, from a cultural perspective. At United, everything was done for you. All your kit was cleaned. Uh, you could get new boots when you wanted. Um, you was you know you was you was very very well um, catered for at Exeter. You had to clean your own training kit. Uh, you got two sets two sets of kit to look after, so it it wouldn't be on unheard of uh, for me and my mate Dave Cooper, who was my best friend down there, to be in a laundrette on a Sunday evening at six half six, cleaning all the training stuff, ready for the for the week ahead. Uh, imagine that at United, stood in a laundrette and getting all your training gear done. Um, there was no canteen facilities at Exeter. United used to get like your dinner after after you finished training. So, but I, it, that never, you know, I, I never had that kind of like privileged upbringing. I didn't have that big ego, if if that made made sense. Like some players would probably be turning the nose up that and saying, "Oh, they've not got a canteen here. They've not. You have to wash your own." I'm not staying. I'm not. I'm not moving there. But that didn't really bother me. That and. And I think, like you know, yourself, Carthic, with your university experience, you know, it, 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 when I used to, when I moved down to Exeter at nineteen, it, it just made you grow up a little bit and look after yourself. You, know, you get a lot of university students who transition into having to get the food in and pay the rent and you know clean up and stuff like that. So it it brings you on as a person. So that that was kind of like the main thing that I maybe picked up on leaving United at nineteen and then you know going down to Exeter. Yeah, you, you had to kind of like start standing on your own two feet now and, and, and maturing and growing up a bit. Yeah, and, and what I find most interesting about this experience, this part of your life particularly, is because you've just come over from Manchester, you've you've adapted to this new life, you've adapted to this massive change and the massive disappointment. You've picked yourself up, you're then having a bit of a positive time, and then all of a sudden this injury comes about and then you're back to square one. and so, some might argue it's an even more difficult thing to deal with. So how was that for you? Because sometimes for me and maybe some other people that are listening to this podcast, you can experience something and go, just can't catch a break. I find myself thinking that sometimes where something will happen and I'll go, I just can't seem to catch a break. Why is life against me? Did you ever feel like that when that happened? And, and talk us through the injury and things like that. Yeah, it was, again, a, a funny a funny situation. Uh, you, you're fighting for your life to try and get a contract and to try and get yourself another opportunity, which, you know, you, it's happening. It's happening, playing in the, some, some nice experiences in the first team, some good results. Um, 
I think what I can remember was, I think it was, um, I started getting a little bit of pins and needles down my legs, I think it was, and into my feet. And But because I was young and daft and stupid, I just thought, I thought it'll be all right. I'll keep, I'll keep going with it, get, get a little bit of um, uh, hot baths and, you know, and just take your time, just be careful and train. I'll be all right. It'll fade away. And and it, it it wasn't it wasn't happening. I remember I remember getting into a game. I think we played Swansea City away, uh, and I said to my mate like Dave again, like Coops, like before game. I said I'm struggling here. Like I can hardly move. Like I can't say to Barley now. Like I won't be able to play because he's he's gone through his set pieces. He's had um, all his strategies set up. He's got the shape done. I can't go to him, Barley now, and say oh, I'm, I'm not fit for today. So I just like thought. Get a load of DP, rub it on my back, uh, off you go. And and you think to yourself, like, what on earth were you thinking at that time? And that's when the surgeon um uh, had a look at my back, like when I've had my scans. I remember like when when I'd had my operation, he called me mum and dad in, like, just to have a chat with him, and he said, like, Alan's back was in a real mess. And he said, like, if he'd have had like a solid tackle on that, or he'd gone in somewhere. He said that the way that his discs and his kind of like his spine had slipped a little bit, he said that could have cut his spinal nerves in half and that would have been like wheelchair job. And you look back on that and you're thinking to yourself, like, what, what, what is that? And you think maybe the resilience that I've learned at United and all that tough guy culture and all that had done me no favours. Like in the future, it almost made you this robot. Nothing can affect you. So I thought like, looking back at that, I thought like, well, yeah, it was shocking and terrible that I lost my career. But even that, finding a little bit of something out of it to say it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. So, so I yeah, think- so two massive life-changing, critical moments to deal with in, within the space of three, three, three seasons or so. You're huge. I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned sometimes there's a bad side to having that resilience because if you go about life with with the attitude that nothing can affect you and, and you'll just work through anything sometimes you you almost put yourself in more more danger and I think that's what you reflected on and I think that's really important for the viewers and the listeners to take to take back because yeah. you want to have that resilience but you shouldn't do it at the cost of, of yourself um, you should know the dangers of what you're going into yeah. um, so obviously you had to go out of the game now you've you've completely lost what you love um, did you ever consider staying in it in a different role because you know obviously in the modern day you see a lot of ex-players go into coaching was that never an option for you? To, again, just just for that earlier point, Carfit, there wasn't a lot of a lot happening in the club at the time in relation to uh, sizes. You know, these days you've probably got more chance of getting something. Like the club would probably offer you the under fourteens job, or you might get a you know an opportunity to become maybe a full time scout, or they might give you some community work. But because Exeter was so tiny, first team manager, assistant manager, physio, uh, resi team manager. Uh, one scout maybe there's not a lot happening so it's almost like where's my opportunity going to come from um, a lad who I knew well at the time called Eamon Dolan he sadly lost his life um, uh, to cancer uh, at a young age um, he, he, Eamon was a really big coach he went on to manage Exeter and become uh, become Reading manager for a spell and I think I think one of the, the stands at, at Reading is, is the Eamon Dolan stand 
Um, he gave me some hours coaching in the football and the community scheme. But the problem with that, Carthick, is it was just seasonal hours. Can you do summer holidays? Can you do Easter? Um, can you do Christmas? You know, any, anything that, that that was kind of being run by the club uh, was only like part-time. And you're thinking, well, I need, I need some hours around that. Um, so I was doing all sorts of bits and pieces. I was like driving vans, warehouse work, um, went through a series of jobs, worked for the Royal Mail for a bit. Because I, I think I'm still in this this age of sort of, 24 to 28 just lost just completely lost not not knowing what what i was going to do next um i I needed somebody at that time to sit me down and say right football's gone Uh, what other skills have you got Uh, what are you good at what do you enjoy but you kind of like trying to find it yourself i think if somebody has sat down with me earlier it might have saved me a year or two um, because it was like 28 before i decided to go back to university so i fought four years of kind of like um, doing things that I really didn't enjoy, uh, didn't really find any meaning from. Um, but but I needed a wage. I needed some wages coming in to pay, you know, for different things. Um, so I think one thing that, that I do take away is like any player who's transitioning out of football, whatever age that is, you know, try and think about making it as, as seamless as possible instead of having to wait and redevelop and retrain and things like that. So... Um, so yeah, so that was kind of my experience of coming out to of, of football at that other end, and um, didn't didn't get a lot of money. I got a bit of money from insurance. Uh, it wasn't a lot, Carthic, in the scheme of things. Uh, got eight eight thousand um, pounds. When you look at that, eight eight thousand pounds. What's that? You know, a, a reasonable wage, say sixteen grand a year. It's half a year's wages. That that's not going to last long when you've got rent to pay. Uh, when you've got. Uh, a car to run, council tax to bet, all that sort of stuff to 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 to, to sort out. That that soon starts dwindling away. Um, so, you know, if if you was kind of a footballer these days, you might got a little bit more money that had allowed you to think a little bit more about what you can do next, etc. But it was kind of like a little bit of sink or swim for me. I had to act quickly and think quickly. Um, so, so yeah, that was. Um, that was kind of some of the tough experiences I had, like after after departing Exeter, and then you know finding finding my path, my, my way again. I think I think that's a very a very difficult thing for people to almost understand because when you're chasing a dream for for a footballer to go in and become a professional, they almost don't want to think about anything else. And if you were to go and tell them, you know, try and have a plan B. What else do you like? They'll go no. I, I'm focused. And I think everyone tends to think about high performance and elite mentality and think you're always focused on your goal. Yes, you should. But I think what you make is a great point there by saying, have a plan B, know what else you can do afterwards because you don't want to end up in a situation where you can't do it and then you have nothing else because then you're just going downhill further and further. So I think that's a really important point for, for the viewers to take away. Um, so obviously you ended up going into, into university, education, Education and then now a sponsor you're lecturing. So how did that come about? Where did that interest in, in teaching come from? Again, like, like a lot of people, Car, I think you, you start off doing something. I think you know you think about this from a degree student's perspective on their journey, first year, second year, third year. You could have probably very, very different identity at first year than you do at third year because you, you're seeing yourself in a different way. At first year, you might be thinking, I want to be an academy coach at uh, at Man United, but look after the 
under 15s, for example. Whereas when you get to third year, you might have sights on something completely different. You might want to go into media work or, you know, so so coming through my degree, I did a degree in sports science. I, I just enjoyed, I thought the lecturers were good, you know, like the way that they taught and the way that they got the messages across and and just by observing them and thinking about my next steps, thinking, well, could, could, could I maybe do something along those lines? Um, with my football background, I understand groups and teams. I understand that people have different needs, that people have different backgrounds, different personalities, different ways of learning. So could I apply that sort of experience into something moving forwards? You know, I think there's a lot of overlap between teaching and coaching. You know, it's all about developing somebody, trying to get the potential out of them through different means, whether that's uh, through motivational means or support means or or arm around the shoulder or or saying, come on, you can do better. You can get higher grades. I know you can. You know, they're, they're different working out different ways to do that. So so sort of almost taking your football experiences and trying to shape them into an educational journey. I think that was kind of like one of my... Um, uh, my, my aims and, and goals to do uh, and like anything else Carthic time flies um, you know you do your degree and then I did a teacher training qualification and uh, I, I worked in a college for a while a college for 11 years they were delivering BTECs and degree programs and um, uh, and then we sort of moved on to UCFB coming up to like six years there so it, so I think this is my, it's either my 18th or 19th, I think it's my 19th year of teaching this year. So, it, and you think like, where's them 19 years gone? It's like flew by, um, you know, they've absolutely gone gone so quick. Um, but yeah, I, I still, you know, I still got that passion. I still enjoy my teaching. It's, still, it's always great to see people do well, you know, young people coming through the programs and then going on to do some, fan, some fantastic things later on and, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, that 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 I found my route into, and, I, and I've enjoyed since, you know. And um, it's uh, it's a nice job, but I, you know, I'm sure you've heard me say, Carthic. I think for some reason, a lot of undergraduates don't want to become lecturers or teachers. They'd rather be football agents, coaches, work in the media, you know, more exciting things. But um, you know, from from a teaching perspective, I think I think. Um, yeah, I've I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed my little run at it, um, and and that was kind of like what I sort of shoehorned my my career, my neck, my second career almost. It's funny because I always look at that. I always think I'm a footballer who become a teacher. I know people say like you're a lecturer. I say no, 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 no. I'm a teach. I'm a I'm a footballer who became a teacher. I always see myself like footballer first. So I'm almost like that two. One quite a short career, and then like a second career, um, and it's always it's always been my aim. Like you think, well, you, you got to the top in football, you know, to an extent. You know, you signed for Man United and you played. Uh, let, let's count that first team friendly as getting to the top. But I always wanted to get to the top then in like something else. So that was like a driver as well. You know, in my teaching, whether that's through my degree, my PGC, my masters, you know, PhD. Like I always wanted to get to the top as well in something else. Um, but if it's like anything else, there's no you never end on something. You get like, you know, to the top of something, you'll set something up, you set a business, you think like, well, what can I do next? You know, can I can I do that? If I'm an under 14s coach, can I become under 16s coach? Can I then go and work with the under 18s? Can I become a first team manager? 
Mm. Um, so you manage it. Can I win the Premier League? Can I win two Premier Leagues? It never ends, Carpet, does it? You know, we're, we're all on a journey and, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a never-ending um, opportunity to think about, you know, what, what is it that you really want to achieve in your life? Because like life's ticking away day by day. It goes very quickly. Uh, we, we only get, if we're lucky, 70, maybe 80 years on this planet. If you're very, very lucky, you know, what is it that you want to, that you want to achieve in, in, in that time? And I think that's one of the hardest questions for any person to answer. You know, what is it that you want to do? I want to manage Man United. We, we all do. But is that realistic? Uh, it's going to be tough to do that. because Only about, you know, small number of people in, in Man United's history have ever managed to, to, to achieve that. Um, you know, do you, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And it's, it's, it's finding that something that, that you're passionate about, that has meaning for you, like football's got meaning, teaching's got meaning. Almost like trying to find a vocation, Carthic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the difference between a vocation is and maybe a job is a vocation is you give your passion and your all to something, whereas a job it's just like, well, I'll just do it. It's nice to get a bit of waging, but do I want to be here? If I if I couldn't be here, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So I think when you find a vocation, it's more like you, you give your all to that, don't you? Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that you know a lot of young people, undergrads, postgrads, will try to find finding a career that's worthwhile for yourself in order for you to be your authentic self, you know, something that you can put a lot of effort into and, and, and develop and strive towards and get real meaning and passion from. I think, I think that's probably the best message I can pass to any, any young person coming through a, a course or, you know, a, the next steps after a course. Not fair enough. And I think we've, We've covered a lot in this in this hour, and I can't believe we, it's already been an hour. But um, before we wrap up, there's two questions that I want to ask every guest of mine, and since you're the first, we'll start with you. Um, first question, what what do you take from your journey that has made you the person you are today? What do you think are the main learnings that you took away? Probably the main thing, Kathy, that I'd pass on to anybody. So you probably here. It's very cliche, isn't it? But ne- never give up. You don't You don't know what's around the corner. Um, you know, always it, it's tough. Like life's life's a tough road. It's a tough journey. It's not easy. A lot, a lot of up, a lot of ups. Yeah, of course, enjoy those, but a hell of a lot of downs as well. Um, just keep battling away. Talk to people. Um, I think I think it's just trying to. I, I think the biggest thing is to try and become the best version of you, and to try and reach your potential, isn't it? In, in whatever that is. Um, but reaching your potential, but remaining like grounded and humble as well. Um, ne- never forget where you come from. Never forget your roots, your background. You know, Fergie, and I think a lot of people probably watching this or listening to this will, will have seen his autobiography, Never Given. And, and Sir Alex is massive on your, your background, you know, what your parents did, where you come from, what your grandma and granddad did. You know, it's all that lineage, isn't it? That lines into your identity and where you're going with with your life, you know, and, and it's, I think, I think in, in the modern day, um, it, it, it's, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of, a lot of uh, horrible stuff, Kathy. We, we see it all the time on social media, you know, the racism stuff. Um, there's, there seems to be a lot of, of people who um, are having a go at the gender stuff in football. The women's football gets a lot of flat. The women, people in the media get a lot of flack. Um, there's a lot of nastiness out there, so it's it's about trying to 
you know, keep that light shining for the goodness, isn't it? And um, it's challenging sometimes and it's it's difficult. But if we all become idiots and stupidity was at its maximum, the world would be rubbish, wouldn't it? So, uh, but yeah, that, that's uh, that's probably like my main, my main point on that. Um, and finally, where do you see yourself in, in 10 years? What is the aim for you? What do you think comes next for the for the Alan Tong journey? Yeah, it's a great question again, Carl. I think I'd, I'd like, I think the next little stage in my life, what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and push um, maybe some level of more charity work or foundation work into mental health and well-being, um, whether that sits in League One, League Two, the professional size at National League, grassroots schools. I'd, I'd just like to get a little bit of stuff out there in relation to the message of never giving up, being resilient, striving to be the best you can be. Um, I think I think that's possibly the one of the next things I'd I'd like to do. Um, I've had a couple of book chapters published, which is really nice. So the next step for myself is to get maybe a full book out there, maybe edit one that I'd probably be high on my to-do list. And then I've also got like one that I'm adding to at the moment um, called From Red to Red, from red as a degree, R-E-A-D to red, you know, being a foot ex-footballer. Um, so so that's something that I'm working on just to, just to try and get, a few tales of that's maybe not been heard from supporters, uh, people who enjoy insights into Fergie, Eric Harrison, Kiddo, uh, players at the time, the culture at the time, and then just devoting a few chapters to maybe modern football and my thoughts on that, about the academies, scouts, recruitment, agents, uh, mental health. So like a little bit of a weave of uh, some insight and tales from my experiences, but some insight and, and knowledge in relation to like the current state of football. That's kind of a few things that, that I'm kind of working on or where I see myself uh, in 10 years build, building on that. You know, that sounds pretty exciting, especially that book. I'm sure um, I'll keep an eye out for it and hopefully we'll do another podcast for it when it comes out and hopefully I'll be in a position where I can promote <laughs> it somewhat. Um, but honestly, no, thank you so much for joining me on, on the podcast today. You're absolutely brilliant. It's been fantastic to get an insight into that journey and how how almost your mind has grown throughout that. And I think it shows in the way you speak about it. So thank you for that. Um, everyone who's watching this, listening to this, thank you for joining us um, on the first episode of the Rebooted Chaos Podcast. Um, wherever you're watching or listening, make sure to like, uh, subscribe, follow and share. Make sure to follow Alan on Twitter. I'll put his uh, links in the description. Make sure to support everything he's doing. Um, and until next time, I'll see you later. Thank you.